Welcome to this, the third uh, roundtable live video discussion uh, hosted by Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, this time with our guests from the Middle East, from Haifa and from North America, from Washington and me uh, in, in, in London, England. Uh, today, we're going to be asking a number of questions, pertinent questions, looking at events as they unfold, looking in particular to ahead at the US presidential elections in November. Uh, and what impact uh, could the elections actually have on policy towards the Middle East and in particular Palestine? Uh, and we want to look at Joe Biden's uh, promise not to move the uh, US embassy back from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. What does that tell us about the direction of travel? Also, today is May Day, 1st of May, Labor Day. Many Palestinians, uh, as with many workers right across the world, don't have any real labor. They don't have any work to go to. And what we want to know is what is the situation on the ground? What is it like in the occupied territories at a time of a pandemic? And more specifically, as uh, Benny Gantz and Med Benjamin Netanyahu uh, push ahead with their July annexation plans, we ask the question, whatever happened to the Israeli Labour Party? I'm Mark Seddon. I've been the UN correspondent for Al Jazeera, and I've worked for the uh, United Nations for the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and uh, last year for the President of the UN General Assembly, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. Uh, and today, we want to also hear from all of you. So if you have any questions uh, to our guests, please send them in. We're going to try and get in as many of them as possible, uh, and we want to hear from you. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our two guests uh, to you today and thank, thanking them very much for taking the time out to join us. Phyllis Bennis. Phyllis is an American writer and activist. She's a leading advocate of Palestinian rights and speaks widely across the United States and worldwide as part of the global peace movement. Uh, her books include From Stones to Statehood, The Palestinian Uprising, and Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a primer. And she currently directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute of Policy Studies. Diana Butu, thank you very much for joining us as well. Diana is a, trained as a lawyer and served as a legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team from 2000 to 2005. She was also an advisor to President Mahmoud Abbas. She's taught courses on negotiation skills at Harvard Extension School and held a fellowship at the Stanford Center for Conflict Resolution and Negotiation. And she continues to work as a political analyst. And uh, Diana, if I might just begin with you. Going to that, uh, what we were flagging up at the top, uh, the reports this week, uh, that uh, Joe Biden, the Democratic Party's nominee for president for this November, uh, when asked about the uh, decision of the Trump administration to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, essentially said, he doesn't seem to have any, I've got no intention of taking it back. What do you make of all of that? What, what is the reaction to this in, 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 in Palestine? It's not at all surprising. Uh, this is one of the things that when the embassy was first moved illegally from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, that many people were commenting, including myself, were saying that this is one of these moves that becomes irreversible, which is why it was so important to oppose it. We knew at the time that there wasn't going to be a Democratic nominee or any president, any U.S. president that would take the step of reversing this illegal measure. And this is why it was so important to stay firm and continues to stay to, so important to stay firm. In fact, uh, leading up when there were a number of different candidates that were still running for, um, for in the primaries, we saw in the, New York, in the pages of the New York Times, they were asked this very question and there wasn't a single candidate that said that they would be willing to move the embassy back 
uh, from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, which just displays the longstanding commitment that the United States has, both parties have, uh, to supporting Israel's settler colonialism and supporting Israeli apartheid. Um, and so this is what was not at all surprising for any of us who've been following the developments on the ground. But it, it is sort of surprising for people from the outside, perhaps, who could see that the uh, the Europeans were very critical of this. Uh, many other um, UN member states were critical. The UN itself was critical of all of this. Um, the United States went out on its own. I think uh, from memory, it was followed by a couple of countries from Central America who then backed off, or one of them did. But, but surely people are asking themselves, uh, Joe Biden as a Democrat could be responsive to pressure from the EU, for instance. What do you think about that? One would hope so, but um, look, I think it's important to keep in mind that we, we are now in a world where we have two countries that are together against the rest of the world. So we have the United States and Israel hand in hand against the international law and against the, the uh, positions of the rest of the world. That being said, the problem ha has been so far with the European Union and with other, with other countries around the world is that while they have not embraced this move as they should not because it is illegal, uh, at the same time, they haven't done anything or they haven't taken any steps to hold Israel accountable. They haven't taken any steps to, to pressure the United States. They've simply just been waiting it out as though this is some uh, kind of rogue president and let's just wait for a new president to come along. Well, we may have a new president in, in November, I don't know, um, but we're seeing that even those policies of the new president are going to mirror very much the policies of this current president. There may, however, be some differences, I want to be clear. I think that uh, when it comes to resuming funding for UNRWA, we'll probably see some, some sort of change with if there's a, uh, if Joe Biden it becomes the president, we may see some additional funding that goes to the Palestinian Authority. But on the major issues, which is things like um, Israel's settlement activity, the apartheid state, the, the continued, continued settler expansion, the home demolitions, and uh, this move of the embassy, it's sad for me to say that the, the two parties are virtually identical. We see this with the amount of money that, get, that goes to Israel every year from the United States instead of going to the, to the, coffer, to the people of the United States. It instead goes yeah. to support this is really something. Uh, and if I'll ask this question of both of you um, before moving on to, to, to another aspect uh, uh, with Phyllis. But if I, Diana, if I can stay with you for a moment, I mean, what kind of signal could this send to the to Netanyahu and Gantz, who are at the moment proposing to move to annex possibly up to thirty percent, they say, of the uh, West Bank? Um, what if they were to proceed with that? Uh, and I mean. Do, do they really think that that could uh, force the hand of a, a, a President Biden? Do you think a President Biden would go along with that as well? Or is that just a push? Is that too far? Certainly none of uh, the United States allies will support that. But would President Biden just go along with it as he seems to have been going along with the situation in Jerusalem with the embassy? It's hard to say, but I think that in the end of the day, it depends in, in large form of how it is that the Israelis do the annexation. I suspect that they're going to do an annexation along the same way that they did the annexation of Jerusalem, which is to say that they extend uh, Israel, the application of Israeli law, and then the people there just end up being um, what they call residents, who are never really permanent residents, but people who whose residency can be um, effectively revoked and be, and be made stateless. This is what I expect that the Israelis are, are going to do. And uh, I suspect that the, that the U.S. response is going to be as weak as it has been when it came to the issue of Jerusalem and as weak as it has been over the course of the past 50 years when we've seen that, in effect, Israel has already annexed um, the large parts of the West Bank. The real issue here is what it is that the United States is willing to do. And so far, it's been shown, Netanyahu has gotten the message that it doesn't matter what he does, he can continue ahead. And, uh, and now he also has along his side, uh, Benny Gantz, who has also very much embraced uh, this concept of annexation 
uh, has also, in fact, labeled it his own. Labeled it his own. I want to say something very quickly, though, about this uh, this unity government for turning it over to Phyllis, which is to say that this unity government that was signed um, very recently, or that was may be formed in the coming days, but the agreement was signed uh, very recently between Gantz and Netanyahu. It's supposed to be an emergency government that's only supposed to focus on dealing with issues of the coronavirus. And yet there's there's and all of the, the legislation that's supposed to be pushed during this period is only supposed to deal with coronavirus, with the exception of one piece of legislation, and that is annexation. And in this agreement, they've made it clear that annexation can proceed as quickly as July 1st provided that there is U.S. support for it. And we've already seen that the Trump administration has given its approval for it. So I think uh, if there is a President Biden that will come into the office, he will have already seen that annexation will have already taken place. And I don't think that he's going to take the, the steps of reversing something that has already been done. Phyllis, if I may come to you, thank you, Diana, but can I come to you, I mean, it, again, looking from the outside, the Trump administration has moved the goalpost so far in many ways and has advanced the and worked so closely with the Netanyahu, Netanyahu agenda. A real gap appeared to be opening up, at least until Joe Biden's uh, emergence as the, as, the, as the Democratic Party nominee, a real gap between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, and also uh, something of a development within the American Jewish community as well, a feeling amongst very many of them that essentially this this really was unacceptable, that the, the, the way this, this was heading was, was, was nothing, it was something they could not support. And, you know, it, as you know, uh, it would appear that, you know, there were many voices within the Democratic Party who were speaking out in a way that we hadn't heard for a long time, including that, of course, of um, Senator Bernie Sanders. So if, if, Pres if President Trump is returned in November, does the, where does this leave um, this growing body of opinion in the United States that really this, this special relationship is really going deeply sour? Well, you know, I think that we have to acknowledge that there is an enormous gap that has emerged between the leadership of certainly the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party's base, its voters. There's been a huge shift in the, in the political discourse, the public discourse, and the media discourse on the question of U.S. relations with Israel, the question of Palestine. It's been largely a, a combination of factors, partly the fact that the uh, Israeli actions, the, the military assaults on Gaza, the expansion of settlements, all of it has been not only far worse in recent years, but far more visible to more people. There's, there's cell phones everywhere, there's cameras everywhere, there's video everywhere in social media. So all of the Israeli efforts to keep the media out simply doesn't work anymore. So people know about it, they're more outraged, and that discourse shift has been a very profound one if we look at 10 years ago, five years ago, even two years ago. But if we look at the policy, that's where the shift is just barely, barely beginning to take off. And that's the challenge for people in the United States who are committed to Palestinian rights. It's not enough to simply say Palestinians have the same human rights as everyone else. That's true and insufficient because Palestinians continue to be denied access to those rights. So I think what we're what we're looking at now with this divide between democratic members of Congress, democratic leadership, and the democratic voters is that the question of US support for Israel has indeed become a sectarian partisan issue. If you look at the polls, it's dramatic, dramatic that it's somewhere in this around 70% of Republicans praise the US special relationship with Israel. On the democratic side, it's I'm forgetting the numbers, but I think it's way down in the 30s or perhaps even below. It's a huge gap. That is not reflected in the political positions taken by the, the members of Congress and certainly not with this White House. So, you know, this has been going on for a while. There was a, a poll back in 2010 that indicated 63% of Democrats, right at the moment when the, the friction between Obama, President Obama and Netanyahu was very, very stark. And there was a lot of challenge to it in the US press. There was a lot of claiming falsely, of course, that Obama is throwing Israel under the bus. You know, there was no bus. Nobody was being thrown anywhere. US military aid to Israel was not 
going anywhere except up. It was increasing, not decreasing. But the press coverage was very much focused on the tension between the two, mostly because Netanyahu treated President Obama with such extraordinary racism. In that context, still, 63% of Democrats chose an option of all settlements should be disbanded and the land returned to its original owners. A very dramatic reading, certainly in, in keeping with international law, but a very dramatic way of describing what should happen. So it's clear that popular opinion is very different. Mm. Now, what that means, again, comes back to what we can do as, uh, as, as a movement, the kind of extremist actions that the Trump administration has taken, not the kind of careful, cautious support for Israel that has characterized earlier uh, administrations, but the overt character of it, moving the embassy, recognizing the the uh, permanent supposedly occupation of the Golan Heights, cutting the the support for UNRWA, accepting the annexation of uh, of Jerusalem, all of these things, military aid remaining the same. We have an extremist foreign policy in power in the White House and the State Department right now between Trump and Pompeo. So this isn't different in that sense. This has been an extremist administration, both in domestic and uh, foreign policy. So in that context, I think that we have to look again to the movements in the United States that are fighting for Palestinian rights. This is a moment when- Can I interrupt you on that, Phyllis, just to take that sure. on? Because um, let us let us just say, for the sake of argument, that um, what may be motivating Joe Biden is what he's being told by his pollsters and what he needs to do in order to get elected. Let's just say that might be happening. Let's just right. say also that uh, he is successfully elected and becomes the next president. Right. Do you think, with the pressure that could come, what you've just been describing in terms of how the polls are shifted, how opinion is shifting, how the Democratic Party has shifted and its mm -hmm. composition in the Senate and the Congress, do you think that real pressure could then be brought to bear on a President Biden to change the policy? Absolutely. I, there's no guarantees here. This, this is, as you've both said, this is a long-standing part of U.S. history. The so-called special relationship with Israel has been a bipartisan reality for 70 years. So that's the starting point. But the notion that we can influence a White House with Biden leading it is far greater than the chance of, of influencing a White House under Donald Trump. There's no guarantees, but right now, for example, the Biden campaign knows they need Bernie Sanders supporters to win this election. They can't win it by just being, you know, the nice guy who's going to bring the country together. There's simply not the votes for that. There's not enough excitement in his campaign. Young people are looking at his campaign and saying, what's in it for us? There's, there's no reflection of the things that inspired people in the Bernie Sanders campaigns, whether it was Medicare for all, whether it was a new kind of foreign policy, cutting the military budget. And yes, changing the relationship between the US and Israel. It doesn't mean that Biden is going to feel obligated to accept all of those, of those positions, but it does mean that people who worked on Sanders campaigns are now collaborating with some of the people working on the Biden campaign. There is the possibility of bringing a new kind of pressure on this campaign that we haven't had in the past. So again, it comes back to how the movements engage with power. This isn't any longer only about the educational work, the boycott work, as important as all of that is, this is now a moment when we can actually engage with people in power, engage with the people running these campaigns to say, look, you have to recognize how the discourse has changed, that it not only is no longer political suicide to criticize Israel, it's rapidly approaching a point, we're not there yet, but we're rapidly approaching a point when it will be political suicide not to criticize Israel. Yeah, That's a very different Thank you very much. And Diana, coming back to you, I mean, we also got to, by the way, this isn't all about, we just want to spend all our time talking about uh, uh, what happens in US presidential elections, important that they are, but I'm just gonna stay with it just a bit longer if that's all right. And to talk about the, the potential uh, Trump second administration, the second victory for Trump, what that could mean. Given that so much of what is happening right now is, is happening, uh, underneath this horrible cloak of a pandemic. So the eyes and ears are averted elsewhere in many ways. 
let's say this annexation plan goes ahead. Let's say Trump is re-elected. Um, where realistically now does this lead uh, to the two-state solution, the Oslo Accords, all the rest of it? I, know, I suspect I know what you're going to say in many ways, but how can we, how is it possible that that this, in the international community, the serious members of the international community who really know what's going on, can continue to hang on to all of this. Uh, you know, how, how does how, what happens next to the to the idea of this of the uh, sticking sticking to the idea of this two state solution? So it's uh, it's interesting that you asked that question. Um, I was uh, I've been looking back at uh, the the assistance that the international community has been providing to the to the Palestinian Authority. And in looking back at that assistance that they've been providing to the Palestinian Authority, one diplomat commented to me once that it's uh, that they're in a space where they're trying to decide whether they are actually building a Palestinian state or whether they are actually funding the occupation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that after all of these years where we've had uh, Oslo that began in 1993, we're now in the year 2020, it was 27 years later, we're, no, we're not even one step closer to having um, an independent state, that it's become very clear that their role is to fund the occupation. And in that role of funding the occupation, which is what they've, they've done, they haven't put the brakes on any of, Israel, of Israel's activities. So while they talk about wanting to have a two-state solution. They've done absolutely nothing to implement it. They've done everything to just make sure that there's funding in place for the Palestinian Authority, but nothing really to deal with the issue of the, of the two-state solution. So where that leaves us now is the same place that it left us um, uh, a few months ago, which is that, that I just don't see that there's going to be any change with one exception. I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant that the money that's going to come to the Palestinian Authority in the coming months, if not years, is going to be much less than it was before because of this pandemic, with, much, with governments now focused much more on, on uh, supporting people within their own borders rather than, supporting, um, rather than supporting Palestinians, rather than supporting refugees, rather than su supporting the, the global community. And, uh, and so that being said, I do think that we're going to start seeing a shift where people are demanding, uh, instead of this idea of, of statehood, that instead they start demanding um, one, one state. Now, the Europeans mm. are not there yet, and they mm. won't be there for a long period of time. What about but the General Assembly? Sorry to interrupt you there, Dinah. What, what, hap what, about, the, what about the General Assembly? Does, does, do we start getting some more initiatives coming through there uh, from the non-aligned movement, from uh, other member states? Do we start seeing some real pressure for this? But one, once... You, you, you kick away the figment of this idea of a two-state solution if, if parts of the West Bank are going to be occupied, uh, annexed. I mean, what, what is to stop member states to say, let's, just, let's stop pretending, let's start being constructive and move on to the next chapter? I certainly hope that it will be the, the next shape. And this is why I've been, I think it's important for us to continue to press, uh, as Phyllis was mentioning, not just for BDS, but to also be holding Israel accountable. It's these accountability measures that I think are the most important at this point in time. Left to their own devices, we're just going to continue to see that it'll be the same setup as before with a whole number of states supporting Palestine, Micronesia, and Vanuatu so supporting um, the United States. Um, but now is the time where we need to start seeing that shift in international activity. We as Palestinians have done our share, pushed it. We've been, we've been resisting. We've been uh, making sure that we do not accept these proposals, that we don't accept annexation. And it's now time for the international community to do their part. I've got a, a couple of questions coming in. The first question is um, from Fahed Abu Akel, um, and he says, what do both speakers have to say about the new Jewish state law? What do, what do you have to, Phyllis, what, what, would, what do you have to say about that? Yes, thanks for that, Fahed. Um, you know, it's funny, I was just thinking about something in response to something Diana said, that the, the situation that, as a result of these extremist positions of the Trump administration, which of course are enabling the kind of extremism that we're seeing from Netanyahu and the Israeli government, including the nation state law, the so-called nation state law, uh, one of the effects of them all is to make it impossible 
to deny that the Israeli system is a system of apartheid. That was something that was always denied vehemently in the US and in the Israeli government. A few, in the last few years, a few members of the government would take the rather brave step in their context of saying that if we don't make some changes, our system is going to start looking like an apartheid system, you know, very cautious. The reality is it is and has been an apartheid system for many, many years now, for decades, for generations, in fact. And what we're looking at now is that it's become almost impossible to deny that. So the case of the, the, uh, the nation state law, which essentially says it passed as the, what would be the equivalent in the United States would be a, a constitutional amendment. It's a, a change to the basic law, not just a regular old law that can be changed by another Knesset, but a change to the basic law that says, among other things, that only Jews have the right of self-determination in the state of Israel, that Arabic is no longer an official language of the state of Israel. It's an explicit statement that the state of Israel is only for Jews and the 20 or 21% of Israeli citizens, we're not even talking here about Palestinians who live under military occupation in East Jerusalem or the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, but we're talking about Palestinian citizens that they do not have the rights of Jewish citizens. And that is by definition, a violation of the international covenant against the crime of apartheid. So I think that's really something that we have to grab. The question of what happens in the General Assembly, there have been moments, Mark, you've seen it, and Diana, you've been around the UN for all those debates as well, and I have been as well too, when, when Father Miguel Descoto, for instance, was the president of the General Assembly at the beginning of the uh, of Operation Cast Lead, the, the first of the three major Israeli assaults on Gaza in recent years. And there was leadership in the General Assembly from the non-aligned and from others to take a much stronger position than the Security Council was prepared to do, for instance, because of fear of a US veto. And they would rather simply not take any position than allow the US to veto it. But the problem is the General Assembly has not yet been mobilized in a way that brings in the stronger countries. The Europeans generally stand aside and abstain on the, on the key issues. And we don't yet have the, the power from governments that are prepared to challenge the US directly on behalf of the Palestinians. And the position of Palestinian diplomacy is still that of the international position of uh, calling for a two-state solution. So it, it's important to hear from Diana and the position of Palestinians. We also have to recognize, Mark, that you and I don't get to make this call. We don't get to say it should be one state or two states or red state or blue state. This is something that has to be determined by Palestinians, how they define their liberation and what that oh, strategy that, 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 well, a, a perfect segue to Diana and, uh, and, and, and to that question from Fahed. Look, the the, um, the Jewish nation state law is uh, a law that I actually call the Jewish supremacy law. Um, and the reason I call it that is because the whole focus of it, it's a law that comes you know, 70 years after the Nakba, um, 70 years after, uh, after years and years, 70 years after laws, discriminatory laws and Supreme Court uh, rulings that entrench those discriminatory laws. And yet they felt it important to actually pass, as, as Phyllis said, the equivalent of a constitutional amendment to entrench and to enshrine all of this um, racism into a law. You know, and the, the split that occurred inside Israel over the, nation, the, the Jewish nation state law was not one about its content. It was a split over whether they should actually have a law or not. Um, with some people saying, look, we're already getting what we want. We, if you look at the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is already ruling in our favor. It's already saying that in, in weighing the issue of whether it's a Jewish state or a democracy, that Jewish state should take supremacy. Um, and so the debate was, why put this in front of the world? Why make this so obvious, as Phyllis said, uh, to, the, to, the, to the world that we're an apartheid state? And the answer is that now it's not just a question of them be, uh, of it being an apartheid state, but they're unabashed about it. This is actually for them a real victory. They want to say to the world, 
yes, we are an apartheid state, and what's the problem with it? Mm -hmm. So, um, so th yeah. this is why I think it's very important for it, people to be pushing course, back. They may be saying that, but there also there's, there does seem to be a major effort underway to mm -hmm. to, to attack anybody who's vaguely critical of all of this, uh, an attempt to box everybody in to stop people speaking out. Uh, we've just actually had another. Yes. I'm, I'm just going to ask uh, one other question from um, our audience before we move on to um, another issue. I just wanted to raise with you, but. Uh, Delinda Hanley has uh, got in touch. Uh, she asked this question. I'll come to you again first, Diane, if I may. Um, she says, in, two th in the year 2000, Arab and Muslim American voters asked presidential candidates, Bush and Gore, to end the use of secret evidence to deport immigrants and also ethnic profile by airline companies. Bush promised to do so. Can you suggest one issue and this is for both of you, I'll start with Diana. Can you suggest one issue each, domestic, domestic or international, that this community, as well as other, as well as other human rights supporters, can get behind? Yeah, I think there's many. Um, the first that comes to there mind is- uh, There has to be one, Diana. Yeah, all right, <laughs> all right, well, uh, look, there's, oh, so I'll come up with two, one domestic and one, one okay. uh, uh, international. Um, I think it's deplorable that the United States continues to provide aid to Israel. And I think that that's something that really has to be pushed back against, particularly now given the state of the economy in the United States and the state of the economy around the world. It makes no sense for, the, for Israel to be getting this money. Second, and uh, this might surprise some people, is I think it's absolutely deplorable that um, Israel continues to be allowed to demolish Palestinian homes particularly in this time when we're all being asked to self-isolate, stay at home and stay safe, that Israel is continuing its policy of home demolitions. And it's continuing to do so without even so much as a peep coming out from, uh, from the European Union and from the United States and, and others. And these are two that just immediately come to mind. I'm sure Phyllis has uh, some better ones that, than I do. Phyllis? I don't know. Those, those are hard ones to beat. I would say that my both domestic and international choice would be the question of the $3.8 billion a year that the US sends directly to the Israeli military. Israel is the, well, depending on whether you believe the IMF or the, or the World Bank, Israel is either the 23rd or the 27th wealthiest country in the world. There's no, there's no rational moral reason for us to be giving any money to their, their country, let alone their military. So that's the first part. Uh, the, the question of what that enables when it covers about 20% of the Israeli military budget, it means that Israel can go ahead without worrying about consequences. Uh, if we were going to choose one other, I would say military aid question and the issue of uh, the Israeli military system for arresting and detaining juveniles. This is the only country in the world that has a military juvenile detention system. And there is a US law that is pending, introduced by Congresswoman Betty McCollum from, from Minnesota to say, and it's the first time there's been a US law proposed in the Congress uh, to prevent any US aid money. It's a very mild law. It doesn't actually call for cutting the military aid at all. It just makes sure that none of that money is used for this horrific system in which the Israeli military is authorized to arrest and try children as young as 12, arresting them at two o'clock in the morning deliberately because it's known to be more terrifying that way. Uh, it, it's a horrific situation. So I would say ending the, the US collaboration with the military detention system for juveniles and cutting US military aid to Israel. Well, thank you both for that. Um, Diana, moving on, um, today is the 1st of May, Labor Day. Uh, I've been looking around in Britain today. The usually the usual marches uh, and banners are, just aren't there. A lot of people, of course, can't go anywhere because they're locked down, as, as people are all over the world, and including um, in Israel Palestine. So, my question, really, to you, because you're there, is: Can you give us some idea of what the situation is for uh, uh, Palestinian workers? What has happened to the world of work? How are people coping without work? These are really amazing questions. So um, I first want to talk about Palestinians who are working inside uh, inside the Green Line, in, inside Israel, and their situation. Then I can talk about um, the bigger population. So 
there's about 80,000 Palestinians who work inside Israel. And for, um, for decades, these, these workers have been, these individuals have been subjected to some of the worst forms of security searches, of detentions, of uh, checks and so on. And for years, uh, there have been calls to have, to have these workers be able to live inside the places in which they work or nearby the places in which they work and not have to be subjected to this constant uh, stream of, of checkpoints and, and security measures and so on. And, uh, and yet Israel has instituted a policy of collective punishment, which is to say that every Palestinian has to fall within the security apparatus. Suddenly overnight, when this pandemic hit, these same workers who were once subjected to um, endless searches suddenly became classified as essential workers. And being classified as essential workers, because many of them are, many of them work in hospitals, in, uh, in construction, in other areas as well, sanitation and so on. Um, suddenly the, the restrictions were now relaxed. Uh, there was no longer a need to go through checkpoints. There was no longer a need to go through these security searches. And, and provided that their employers were to provide them with adequate um, housing during this period. And the, the employers promised to do so. What we ended up seeing was very quickly that uh, the conditions in which uh, these people were, Palestinians were being forced to live were, were conditions that were subhuman, that were um, places without proper sanitation, without without uh, proper running water, you name it. And, uh, and so now we're seeing that um, many of, of these Palestinian workers are now going back to the West Bank, many of them actually carrying the coronavirus. Now, um, the, the fact that they're going back is because they haven't been provided with adequate housing, they haven't been provided with any adequate um, measures to be able to stay in place, but their salaries are also not being guaranteed. They have never, Israel has always refused to hand over any of the, the money that it deducts from Palestinian workers for, um, for social security. Even though they deduct it, they've never handed it over to the Palestinian Authority. So these are people who are um, among the most vulnerable in society who have been tossed around, one hand labeled as security threats, the next second labeled as essential workers, and been treated as though they are simply dispensable with none of their rights ever being afforded or protected. On the larger scale, on the larger um, both West Bank and Gaza scale, we're talking about very high numbers of unemployment. In the, in the Gaza Strip alone, there's 53% unemployment. These are huge numbers. Um, and, uh, and in the West Bank, also very high numbers of unemployment. Now with the, with the impact of the, of the coronavirus, where a lot of governments would be coming forward and trying to provide stimulus packages and trying to provide compensation to people who are out of work, we simply don't see that because the Palestinian Authority is a government that is donor dependent and donor driven. So um, we, do, we are not going to see that people are going to be able to get off of their feet or, or get off their feet and be able to support one another um, in the aftermath of this pandemic. So I suspect that we're going to see even more poverty, even more food insecurity and even higher rates of unemployment. Well, that sounds pretty grim. Uh... Uh, certainly no cause for celebration on the 1st of May. Uh, and uh, actually, it brings me on to another question that's just literally come in from uh, Jim Haber. Uh, I'll, I'll put this to you, Phyllis, if I may. Uh, have you been following or involved in the development of the One Democratic State campaign that I think was unveiled yesterday? Seems, seems very far from where we are, but very necessary to develop such long-term vision. Do you know much about this initiative? I don't know about what happened yesterday. There's been a long uh, period in, in the US, I can remember back in the, in the 1970s, debates over one state, two states. Uh, and I think what I've come to, to realize is that this really is an issue for Palestinians to, to determine in the context of their strategy for liberation. For those of us who support Palestinian rights, we can have our opinions. I won't surprise you to know I have opinions about this issue. Uh, but it's not really my call. Mm. You know, I'm a Jewish girl from California. Let's, let's neatly pass that to Diana in that case. But wait, wait, can I just say one other yes, thing? I think it doesn't mean that we don't have obligations here. Yes. It just means that we don't have the right to determine 
should the focus be on one state or two states? For me, the issue is rights, equality, yeah. human rights. And when we fight for those rights, it's up to Palestinians to determine whether it's in one state where everybody has the same rights or two states where everyone has the same rights within both states and between both states, which is not often talked about. So it's a question of rights and not states. Diana. Um, I'm actually part of the One Democratic State campaign. Um, so thanks for the question. Yes, it's been a it's been a platform that we've been working on for quite some time. It, it's a group of um, of Israelis, of Palestinians, um, primarily based here, with with a lot of signatories from from abroad, from uh, you know around the world. Uh, but the the essential movement was the essential idea was to try to get a platform that is launched from Palestine. The 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 campaign is an important one. It focuses, unlike others um, campaigns, which just fo focus on one state and uh, not really how, how to get there. This focuses on, on um, decolonization and has as one of its very essential elements, the issue of the right of return. So in the context of, well, while the world is talking about annexation, one state, two state, et cetera, here we have a platform um, that is actually a vision that's being put forward by Palestinians, by people who are on the ground, that is calling for something that is completely different, that focuses on the root cause being Zionism and, uh, and addressing Zionism uh, from the standpoint of the people who've been most affected by it, rather than accommodating it. Thank you, Diana. Um, I'm going back to the theme of labor, um, if I may. Uh, and I wanted to direct this question to, to you, Phyllis. I mean, again, for people uh, looking from the outside who remember uh, the Israeli Labour Party of old um, and remember that it was part of the Socialist International, uh, took a very different approach to, 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 to what it seems to be taking today. My, my question is, you know, what on earth has happened to the uh, Israeli? This is Labour Day, but what has happened to the Israeli Labour Party? Um, uh, and also, I mean, I also discovered today one one other question just to ask you. They left that the Israeli Labour Party is no longer part of the Socialist International, but it still has observer status with the Party of European Socialists. And I just wondered if you uh, had any ideas about that and what should happen. Well, I actually don't think it's such an enormous change from the history of the Labour Party. Certainly the early Labour Party uh, was part of the Socialist International. The the notion of what some Zionist forces were trying to build in Palestine was a socialist uh, Israel, a socialist Jewish state. Uh, and yet they were prepared to build socialist institutions, the kibbutzim being the, the most obvious, uh, on land that was expropriated from the indigenous population without ever really talking about that. That was the kind of Zionism that I grew up in, in my Sunday school, when I was a Sunday school teacher, all of that. We taught about Israel as a socialist paradise uh, and the kibbutz movement was the, the core of it. That was never separate from the question of control of the land and seizing the land from the indigenous population that was already there. I think that the notion of annexation might have been accepted by the early Zionist leadership if they knew that they were going to have US support for it in an explicit way. We should remember that settlement of the West Bank and Gaza began under the Labour Party. It wasn't the right wing. So the Israeli Labour Party was socialist within a certain context, but was also thoroughly colonialist in its understanding of its rights to the land. So it isn't, I think, such, a, such an enormous shift right now. There is a huge shift that's been underway with, within the broad Israeli left, of which the Labour Party hasn't really been the leader of the left for a very long time. The left has taken a huge hit and it's smaller than ever, it's more beleaguered than ever, uh, and it's in serious trouble, I would say, in Israel. But the Labour Party itself, uh, I think really was, uh, from the beginning, a Zionist party that was committed to maintaining control of what they would consider the land of Israel for Jews and not to be shared with the Palestinians. There were individuals who may have believed that, but that was never the, the real operative but uh, position of the looking at the situation right now, it's a kind of a, a weird, a weird kind of Israeli political triangulation underway. I mean, given all of that history that you've outlined, um, 
which would suggest really there's not a fantastical amount of change there. But given that, the, that right now the Israeli Labour Party doesn't really pretend to be particularly socialistic at all and seems to have more or less the same policy as Likud, will, will, will it simply disappear? It certainly could. It's, it doesn't any longer play a qualitatively different role in Israeli society, economically, socially, politically, than the leadership of the Likud. Uh, you know, these are parties that are driven as much by sort of personalities and who's going to be in charge at any given moment as they are by ideological differences. The ideological have shrunk. The differences have shrunk. Uh, so I think that it's certainly possible it would disappear. I'm not sure that that would have an enormous impact on the politics of Israel. If we look at the, the, what the politics have been for the last 10 years or so, Netanyahu as, pres as prime minister during that period, in a certain way really represents the left wing of his parliament, of, of, his, of his cabinet, not because he has moved to the left, but because he has recruited further and further to the right. So the party, the, the cabinet, the government is now made up of the right, the far right, the extreme right, and really the fascist right within Israeli uh, politics. The left or the centrists are really not much of a force anymore. Benny Gantz, who was the, the hoped for alternative to Netanyahu by some, uh, was the military commander in 2014 who oversaw the destruction of Gaza and the killing of 2,200 uh, people in, in the Gaza Strip and his campaign video was a helicopter tour over the devastation of Gaza, bragging about how much death and destruction he brought about. So that's what was considered the, the left-wing alternative to Netanyahu. Well, I mean, so I think it's something we should really come back to at a, a future Palestine deep dive. I think this would be a, a real education for a lot of people out there. Sure. Um, I'm going to come to another question. This is coming from uh, Kieran Baker in Washington. Um, uh, this for you, Diana. Uh, is there any hope that the joint list and ODA can make a real impact? And as a follow-up, how would you sum up or characterize the Palestinian political leadership? The, um, the joint list, um, if, so I'm going to put it, I'm going to step back for a second. Most people, when you think of an opposition, you think of an opposition movement that is, um, you know, you kind of want your, your people when you vote to make it into government and you want them to be able to be ministers and you want them to be like, if they're not in the government, then kind of opposing what the government is doing, but on the sidelines, like on the front lines. When it comes to the joint list, it's a little bit different. The joint list will never join the government because this is a government of occupation. And they will never become part of a government that is um, taking the decision to drop bombs on Gaza or taking the decision to demolish uh, Palestinian homes. That's just not going to happen. So their role always has been as opposition, but not as opposition in, to, in the, in the um, classic sense of the word that we have inside the Israeli Knesset, but as an opposition to the, all of the action and all of the actions that are, are coming out of the out of the, the Knesset that are um, against Palestinians. But, uh, and so their, their role is, is, is kind of threefold that I think of it. It's to try to be an opposition to, to prevent the deterioration, uh, to, to hold on to, to Palestinian rights for Palestinian citizens of Israel, um, to be able to try to make sure that Palestinians stay on the ground and as much as possible to serve as an opposition to the occupation, because every other party is actually in favor of the occupation, with the exception of Meretz, um, which has two seats. So their role is really um, not just to be in opposition, but it's to be in even further opposition to try to present a very different vision. In in this way, look, they're they're um, they've been doing this for 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 decades now, and we're seeing. Um, that as the numbers of the individuals who are in the joint list rise, that there's even more racist legislation that is coming um, to that is that is attempting to be passed. So, so their their work they really do have their work cut out for them, and they continue to to try to push back against that um, against those racist laws. As for the West Bank um, or the other Palestinian political leadership, it's uh, it's non-existent. It's been a, a political leadership that 
is stagnant, that is focused only on Oslo, that doesn't have a vision beyond Oslo. But not just, but I think it's important to keep in mind, it's not just a, a, a leadership that is solely focused on Oslo. Um, it's also a leadership that is focused on its own survival. And so it has taken measures to do everything to quash any form of opposition, any form of resistance. Um, they've, they've gone after the, the Palestinian authorities, gone after the media, they've gone after judges, they've gone after um, NGOs. Um, so it's not just a stagnant uh, Palestinian authority, but one that is being active in its, in its, in its pursuit of making sure that they are the only um, address that is in place in the West Bank. Well, well on that, I'm really just staying on that subject and, and, and going to, to Phyllis, I mean, what's your judgment? I mean, you know, obviously you're not there, but you're a, a long-time observer of all of this. What, what is your judgment in terms of the Palestinian Authority? And has, can this edifice actually still stand post-July annexation, or does it just crumble away? Well, I think that we have to look back to something that Diana said very crucially early on in, in our discussion today, which is about the origins of Oslo and the origins of the Palestinian Authority within Oslo. It was a product of the Oslo Accords. And the other parts of the Oslo Accords that were supposed to involve uh, negotiations for the end of occupation never happened. What has survived from Oslo is the PA. Now it can survive because it's, it's funded from outside. It doesn't depend on local support, local taxation. It, it depends on European and US funding. Uh, increasingly, and, the U.S. Israeli funding as well. The Europeans are still providing a, a, the the bulk of the of the funding to the PA. Mm -hmm. So the structure can survive, presumably for a long time. Whether it will have much relevance in a period where there is little land left to even discuss the possibility of a an independent state, let alone a viable independent state, uh, is a different question. So as that happens, I think that we will see the, the PA having a somewhat different relationship to, uh, to the people who live uh, under its jurisdiction in the, in the West Bank. The, the important thing here, though, is the PA never had real authority, despite its name. It has what we might call kind of municipal authority. It never had the, the ability to function as a real government with the recognition of Palestine as a state by the United Nations and by certain countries, there are certain diplomatic things that have been made possible, most notably the work with the International Criminal Court that has the one possibility still, it's a very long shot, but the possibility of holding Israel accountable for some of its war crimes over the years. But in terms of actual control of borders, control of its water, control of the seas off its coast, the Palestinian Authority doesn't have control of any of that. and. Mm. Palestinian state as envisioned in, in the US proposals in, the, in Oslo, also it was never anticipated that that quote state would have actual control, would have actual authority, would have a military if it chose or not a military if it chose not to, would have control of its borders, would have control of its own economy, would control the seas off its coast. None of that was, was supposed to be in a so-called Palestinian state. So on that level, it has not changed in the 27 years since the Oslo Accord was, was first signed. Thank you, Phyllis. I'm, I'm going to turn now in the, in the last uh, uh, remaining minutes, if I may, to um, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. We've been keeping an eye each week on uh, WHO statistics uh, in uh, the Palestinian territories. Um, Yesterday, WHO was saying that there are 507 people infected in the West Bank and East Jerusalem and 490 people in Gaza. Um, there have been some deaths. I think there have been about four or five deaths in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, possibly as, as many in Gaza. I'm not quite sure. But, um, you know, this is of with, with the with the world's media attention on the pandemic elsewhere. There's always the the worry that uh, in areas that are really uh, struggling, where there's poverty, where there has been a whole uh, history of um, of poor resourcing of medical resources and cuts, of course, recently to UNRWA, although some of them have been made up 
question, I suppose, is um, given that WHO are being able to pull these statistics together, I suppose, would you know, Diana, how accurate they can be? Do you know also who is actually conducting testing and tracing and quarantining? What What, what is the fear about COVID-19 in the Palestinian territories? Um, the fear is that we don't have an independent healthcare system. And so because we don't have an independent healthcare system, that it, it's a system that wouldn't be able to cope. Um, in total, I believe there's about 200 ventilators. 90% uh, of them are being already in use in the West Bank. And, uh, and so very quickly, when, when the pandemic, when there was the first case of uh, first person that tested positive for seven people who tested positive in Bethlehem, the Palestinian Authority very quickly shut down uh, the entirety and quarantined everybody um, from March the 5th onward. And there's still, there's still a, a, a lockdown that is in effect there. Um, in terms of the, the testing and the numbers, uh, look, I think it's important to keep in mind that it's not just that we don't control our own healthcare system, it's that we don't even have, we don't control the ability to, to do these tests. The testing has been testing that has come, um, that has been donated from abroad and given to the World Health Organization and then given on to the Palestinian Authority. And even that, the Israelis have been blocking, haven't been fully facilitating all of this testing. And similarly, in the Gaza Strip, the, the number of test kits that they've provided are, are not even in the tune of, not, even less than uh, 1%. So the fear here is that because... Um, there isn't a system to be able to, to cope with all of these individuals who might get sick. Their only backstop that has been used has been to impose quarantines. And for the most part, that has been effective um, so far. And as I said, it's been now close to two months that they've, um, that they've been being, being slightly cynical about all of this, I mean, if in effect you're running a, a quasi-apartheid or an apartheid system in the occupied territories and... Uh, Palestinians can't move into areas that have been settled illegally, then there's no risk necessarily of the transfer of COVID-19. So you've actually got um, a quarantine there to start with. You don't need a quarantine in a way because people have already been quarantined. They, they, can't, they can't move. Yes, except that um, many of the cases that have come, there's been uh, cases of three types. One is that people who were infected because of tourists who came into the, into the area, the first seven were infected from a, a group of Greek tourists who had come to the area. Um, the second is Palestinian political prisoners who the Israeli authorities have put under complete lockdown and yet who has, many of them have been infected. Some of them are being released from prison because they've served their uh, prison term and are now infecting others. And then the third source is the is the workers that I was mentioning. So um, there is the scope of being able to be infected. Similarly, in the Gaza Strip, the individuals that we've seen that have been infected are people who were coming from abroad um, after returning from, from their studies in, in different places uh, around the world. And, 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 and finally with you, Diana, the, the, the question of Palestinians in Israel proper, if you like, um, what evidence is there that everybody's being treated uh, equally or has equal access to health care if they are Israeli citizens? There is no evidence of it. This is exactly the issue that we've been facing here. Um, so I'll step back. In terms of the testing, the, the test, there is, there is no, uh, there was no effective testing that was being done in Palestinian communities until Palestinian NGOs and the Palestinian MK started pressing the government to have testing centers take place. And this is why we're now seeing that two weeks after the spike that happened in Jewish Israeli towns, we're now seeing a similar spike happen in Palestinian towns because for the first two and a half weeks, there actually was no testing that was being done. There's only now being testing that's done through mobile clinics, and that was only the result of either litigation or a lot of pressure that was brought to bear on the government by, uh, by NGOs and by members of Knesset. Um, it's also important to keep in mind that there aren't any hospitals in Palestinian towns for Palestinian citizens of Israel. The, since 1948, 
Israel hasn't built a single hospital in any Palestinian town and instead has only built hospitals that are in Jewish Israeli towns. So even if you are sick and are and feel that you have the symptoms, you have to travel a great distance to be able to get any form of treatment. Where would you um, have so to go effect, if you're a Palestinian? Where would you have to go? You'd have to go to a, a a nearby hospital, but none of the nearby hospitals are in your town. For example, the city of Imel Fahim, which is in the north, has uh, close to 60,000 people in it and has no uh, hospital, no near hospital. The closest hospital is more than 25 kilometers away. To be able to act, if you are in a place where you're having um, the inability to breathe, you can imagine what 25, uh, 25 kilometers can do. Um, and so this, is, this has been the story of Palestinian citizens of Israel. They've always faced uh, discriminatory policies and, and unequal treatment. And now what we're seeing with the coronavirus is that this is just highlighting these 72 years of, uh, of, of disparate treatment. Well, I mean, this is a real revelation to, to many of us. And um, again, I think it's something that we should get back to in, in, in a future Palestine deep dive. I think we need to try and explain to as many people as possible what is happening um, in terms of COVID-19 and Palestine and Palestinians. I think this is really a very important issue. Um, and I just really, I suppose, finally, I'm going to take it to you, Phyllis, uh, for the last word on this. We know that the pandemic is throwing this great cloak over uh, media coverage of all manner of issues. Um, there is nothing that's dominating, the, for instance, the UK media than other than COVID-19 and how it affects Britain. There's very little reporting of anything else from outside this country. I, I imagine it's probably the same almost wherever you go. So the pandemic throws this cloak over everything. It enables... Um, it enables seriously bad things to happen without uh, the usual, at least, at least, at least some sort of investigation or coverage. But also, when this comes to an end, everything will have been so shaken up, uh, socially, economically, uh, politically, and oh, most importantly in terms of health. Where do you think that? Where do you think it all could lie in Israel-Palestine at the end of this? Where does it leave the Palestinians? You know, all over the world, this pandemic has been disastrous for everyone other than the ultra-rich. They may have gotten sick as well, but they had health care. Um, we should note that here in the United States, for instance, in just the period from March 18th until April, April 10th, just a matter of about three weeks, there were 22 million people who lost their jobs, who had some kind of a job, usually not a very good one, but some kind of a job, in that same period, the US billionaires increased their wealth by $282 billion. It was up 10%. So the billionaires are making a killing on this pandemic. Everywhere we look, we see the, the huge fissures of inequality getting wider. And that's certainly the case for Palestinians who have always faced inequality since the creation of Israel with the Nakba. They have always faced this kind of inequality, and now it's worse than ever. What we're seeing is that this is systemic, and we're seeing it again here in the United States. This is not going to be just a momentary challenge because Trump handled it badly. This is showing the institutional inequalities, the institutional inequities and fissures in society, and that's true in the Palestinian territories. It's true inside Israel. It's true everywhere. Uh, I think that, again, it, it's going to come back to how our movements are able to survive this challenge, to, to mobilize without being able to meet together, to use technology for those that have it and recognize that the digital divide means that not everybody can jump onto Zoom calls and, and webinars at will, but to recognize that, as you say, Mark, everything is going to be different. It's not necessarily going to be better. There is discussion underway everywhere, I think, and I'm sure, although I'm not on the ground in Palestine, I'm sure it's happening there as well, to say that when this is over, we can't simply go back to what used to be called normal because there was nothing normal about mm -hmm. the pre-pandemic ways that Palestinians had to live. Living under apartheid is not normal. Living under enormous 
economic inequality in the United States where we have 140 million poor and low wealth people, that's not normal either. Everywhere we're facing these kinds of fissures and inequalities. And the challenge to us all, I think, is how do we make the linkages so that the question of Palestinian rights is not a fringe issue any longer, is not something off on the side, but is part of what it takes to recover for a world that has gone through this kind of shakeup. This is nothing that anyone alive today has experienced before in a conscious way. And I think that we don't have a model to look at. We're gonna to have to create new models. Palestinians are going to have to create new models for their own new ways of fighting for liberation in the post-pandemic era. Hopefully it will not be after the deaths yeah. of thousands, which is of course the, the danger. That's no, the, I, no, I think we are, we are beginning to see the beginning of a global response, uh, certainly uh, various UN and, and, and climate change and green campaigners are coming together to be talking about a, a new global um, economic deal, a new green deal. Which, gets, which could get a real lift from all of this. I'd simply say in uh, in in parting as an observation that uh, since uh, at the end of all of this, um, the states, uh, when I say the states, I don't mean the United States, I mean states generally will have uh, had to spend that much of their national wealth effectively nationalizing their economies. Uh, and most of us will be left with with, with with very little money, if anything at all, the only people who will have it will be the billionaires. So the only people who really can um, pay back the money will very possibly have to be the billionaires. Um, so on, on that slightly uh, happier note, perhaps, we'll I think we'll have to, to leave it for this week, but thank our panelists very, very much indeed. I think it's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you for all of those of you who, who took part. Uh, and thank you also for everybody at Palestine Deep Dive behind the scenes who made this happen. Um, and until the next time, uh, from all of us, thank you very much indeed.